This is a branded podcast from Postscript Studios. Sheldon Kimber has spent the last 20 years developing energy projects. Feels like a very, very long time. I usually introduce myself by saying I've spent my whole life in the career in the energy industry because that's how it feels. But then people are incredulous that I came out of the womb this way. In the infancy of his career, Sheldon financed gas power plants. And then in 2007, he moved into the fast-maturing solar industry. As the chief operating officer for Recurrent Energy, he oversaw the build-out of $2.5 billion worth of large-scale solar power plants. But getting those projects in the ground wasn't easy. Abrupt national policy shifts, international trade wars, and local regulatory hurdles made every megawatt of solar a fight. I often tell people that there must be an easier way to make money. Uh, And the solar coaster, while it has been good to me and the companies that I've helped build, uh, it it definitely, um, I will spend fewer years on this earth in the aggregate because of my choice of vocations. I'm pretty sure of that. Today, the renewable energy transition feels inevitable. The price of solar electricity fell by 90% in the last decade, and the price of wind electricity fell by 70%. Those stunning price drops weren't inevitable, but they were predictable, partly because people like Sheldon were building renewable power plants at a consistent pace. It happened in solar, it then happened in wind, it's happening in batteries, it'll happen in electrolyzers. It's a very similar pattern over and over again. So the emergence of a new technology and the deployment in the power sector is relatively predictable in terms of its move from technology to financeable at scale and then deployment. These are all well-worn paths that have been cut across numerous technologies in the past. That's what's predictable. All that cheap renewable power is opening up opportunities in other areas of the economy. And today, as CEO of Intersect Power, Sheldon is building a portfolio of massive solar and battery projects that can enable predictable cost drops for other low-carbon solutions. There is very much a business model for making clean hydrogen or Bitcoin or whatever it is from low-cost renewables. Um, and so that's, that's really the name of the game and where we're focused. In this episode, produced in collaboration with Intersect Power, Sheldon Kimber talks about his vision for the inevitable industries that will arise from low-cost, clean electricity. So we believe that the low-cost, high-capacity factor, clean electricity, is effectively the input to what we call the the nexus of deep decarbonization. That high-capacity factor, low-cost, clean electricity, is the core input to a number of industries that really don't exist today in many cases. Let's take, for example, hydrogen. You have a hydrogen electrolyzer that requires an enormous amount of energy. The large portion of its cost is is the input energy to the electrolyzer, right? Uh, So as energy prices become lower and lower, and you can still maintain kind of, you know, high capacity factor on on that electrolyzer, all of a sudden it becomes economic to make hydrogen with electrolyzers, right? And then... As you deploy more and more of those electrolyzers, the cost to build those electrolyzers goes further and further down the cost curve, similar to solar or wind. And so you have this virtuous cycle where one portion of the cost structure becoming low enough, the, the, the energy, the variable input, triggers a point where you can then deploy more of the technology, which continues to then push it down the curve. We see that same pattern emerging in Green hydrogen and, and e-fuels, which are essentially upcycling green hydrogen to longer 
chain hydrocarbons. We see it happening in desalination. We see it happening in uh, the electrification of thermal loads for industry. We see it happening in mass EV charging and, and direct air capture. So, you know, those five industries are what we've identified as, you know, the areas where we think there is inevitable growth in the sort of hundreds of billions of dollars. These are these are industries that could easily be some of the largest industries that our planet has uh, in the next 30 to 50 years, and they barely exist today. And what they all have in common is that the genesis of their growth is high-capacity factor, low-cost, clean electricity. So in hydrogen, what has changed today? What is happening with electrolyzers that is leading you to believe that the cost is going to continue to come down and that cheap renewable electricity is the key to a hydrogen economy? What we learned in solar and in other technologies, including you know even battery tech, is that there's not actually change, a, a radical transformative change in the technology that is required sometimes. Sometimes what you need is some genesis point, some tipping point that encourages mass deployment. And then what happens is instead of the technology finding some sort of, you know, new catalyst or new, you know, new scientific breakthrough, you just simply build these things at greater and greater scale, right? And so anything that really triggers a build out of some of these technologies, these existing technologies that we know how to do at greater and greater scale, uh, really winds up pushing them down the cost curve. And so electrolyzers, for instance, while there are, often, there are very clearly some great tech out there, and, and there may be some breakthrough tech out there, it's not required, right? You can take technology that has been around for quite a while and with some incremental changes with these low costs of input power, really begin to roll it out at scale. And then as you do so, what happens is you provide these manufacturing companies with the chance to really begin to optimize and change the design and, and you know learn as they go, right? That's exactly what happened in solar panels, right? It's what you see when you see um, folks like the two former CTOs of First Solar going over to run a hydrogen electrolyzer company, right? Those guys aren't going over there because they're, you know, want to go back and do a PhD in physics and chemistry. And, you know, they're going over there because they know how to build factories and they know how to optimize designs to get cost out. And that opportunity exists because there is demand for those technologies to come down that cost curve because this cheap electricity exists to power them. Let's move to direct air capture. There are a handful of companies that are deploying projects at an early commercial scale using a variety of uh, technologies, and the cheapest cost so far is about $1,000 a ton, as I understand it. And there are companies out there willing to buy uh, credits at $1,000 a ton. That's still very expensive to remove and sequester carbon or use that carbon. If it's so expensive today, what do you think makes it inevitable? How does it follow the, the cost trajectories or deployment trajectories that you've historically seen? The reason it's inevitable is, first and foremost, maybe less about the costs in some respect, right? We, we have to start from the understanding that the planet is warming and we are going to have to do something about it, right? There, it's not like you get to the IPCC targets and, you know, gosh, we, we, we missed it. Dang, let's try again. You know, it's it's... <laughs> at some point we wake up and, you know, it's not 1.5 degrees, it's 2, 2.5, et cetera. So this has to be solved at some point. So direct air capture and technologies like it, you, you really have to start from the, the viewpoint of negative emission technologies are a must, right? It must happen. And, and then you add on 
you know, the fact that we've been talking about here, which is that energy is increasingly, you know, closer and closer to free in some places at some times, and that it is, you know, in increasingly higher capacity factors in some places and sometimes. When you, when you look at all of that, it really points out, I think, that you're going to have to have these negative t- uh, emissions technologies and will continue to be enabled by this drastically falling power price that makes me feel like, you know, there is a path here. Now, it is very much early days. Just to be clear, you are spot on. You know, current price points are way too high. But, you know, we're having lots of conversations with technology providers who could use our power to scale their technologies. And there are plenty of them out there at industrial scales that will definitely get down into the, you know, $100, $200, you know, a ton kind of level, at which point capture becomes your backstop technology, if you will. And it will set the price point at which other technologies will have to compete to decarbonize because your best alternative is to just put it back in the ground otherwise. The latest mantra in clean energy is electrify everything. And most people associate that term with electrifying homes and commercial buildings. But you think that electrification of industrial thermal loads is an important way to utilize this cheap, ubiquitous, high-capacity renewable electricity. What about thermal loads is so attractive as a use case? Well, you know, industrial thermal loads have a property that I, you know, I, I like uh, a lot, which is just scalability, right? You've got 20% of global carbon emissions that come from essentially boiling water to do things like make, you know, everything from consumer packaged goods and, you know, uh, uh, cardboard packaging to, you know, drying food. And, you know, when we first started getting into this, I looked at it and I said, oh man, you know, that's a really hard problem because you've got things like cement or steel that require incredibly high temperatures, right? So we started segmenting the market. And what you find is that, (laughs) what's interesting, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of steel and there's a lot of cement, but there's also an enormous amount of relatively low quality, low heat steam that is out there that could easily be addressed with even today's electrification technologies, we're going to go after these large, centralized, multi-gigaton opportunities um, where we can use this high-capacity factor, low-cost, clean electricity to get the most leverage on carbon emission reduction. And that is, in my mind, targeting these 20% of global emissions uh, with electric boiler systems and things of that nature. And over to mass EV charging, uh, how do you see EV charging networks being used and utilizing low-cost renewables? What's their benefit? What makes the, the, the piece of this infrastructure that I'm talking about valuable is it's a grid asset. When we say mass EV charging is, is sort of enabled by high-capacity factor, low-cost clean electricity, what we mean by that is that there's this whole other segment of EV charging that kind of picks up where the gas pump that you know where the thing in the in the parking lot of the mall left leaves off right and that is when you start going to parking lots that need more than two chargers and they need 10 or 20 or you're charging a, a fleet of 20 semis at a truck stop and each of them has a you know 2 megawatt charger on it you begin to get in into into our world which is wholesale power right and now that that charging station has an aggregate load that might be 20 30 50 megawatts Right? How do you serve that? Already these charging stations have essentially battery storage that sits between them and the grid, right? That that they charge up so that as as at, at 
full capacity, they can meet everybody's load. They're essentially buffering energy, right? There are opportunities then for these charging stations to essentially participate as, you know, wholesale power plants, right? Uh, providing storage services to the grid, that sort of thing. That's really where I think folks like us come in. We can provide some of that infrastructure, some of that buffering, provide the low-cost clean electricity, and they can do the things that they do best, which is you know, kind of marketing and, and maintaining the consumer network, which is not our business. What's changed the most in terms of how you actually develop projects? You know, that, that I think is actually uh, a really interesting question because it, it also goes to the heart of some of the questions that were being discussed when we first put the company together. When you're trying to scale a development business, you oftentimes wind up chasing like the small but very profitable project. And the problem with those is even if, you know, you tell yourself, oh, but there's, there's a scalable opportunity here because there are 10, 20, 50 of these things. You go in there and you usually find out that there are less than you thought there were. And by the time you're done staffing to put together, to, to go attack that, those 10 carports, you know, 10 five megawatt carports in upstate New York, they're not as profitable as you thought they were either. This company is really built around focus and scale, right? We are a small team relative to the size of what we're doing. It doesn't mean we're 10 people. It could mean we're 200 people, but we're going to be 200 people when most of our competitors are 2,000 people, right? This the people that are doing the same level of megawatts and gigawatts that we're doing. So we're a small team. We don't do very many projects at the same time, and we do projects that are the largest in the country. So, you know, our average project size is, you know, 300 to 500 megawatts, which are some of the largest projects out there. And we do just don't do small projects. So that's how the game has changed and, you know, how we've chosen to sort of react to that change. So we started this conversation off talking about industries that you think are inevitable. And the question is, when will they be? inevitable. Do you think that these industries can scale and come together fast enough to decarbonize as quickly as we need to? I, I certainly hope they do. Otherwise, um, I've been lying to my children. When I think about it, I, I, I don't necessarily even think about can it. I think about how, how. How will it happen fast enough? Maybe I'm an optimist. Maybe I'm someone who just is a, con, you know, like a control freak who believes he can control the outcome of things. But, you know, I, I think that if you've got enough determined people, it is not a technology problem. Increasingly, it is not a capital problem. The capital markets are there to support this growth. Ironically, some of the major you know, concerns to going this fast are going to be people problems. They're going to be people on both the far left and the far right failing to compromise. And, and you're going to see a lot of those human problems. So we spend a lot of time on shows like this and, and elsewhere talking about big technical and financial markets. And, you know, is the technology there? Can it be scaled? Ironically, it is going to come down to people and neighbors and whether or not they allow these solutions to be built in their neighborhoods, in their counties, in their towns for us to scale this fast enough.
Sheldon Kimber is the CEO of Intersect Power. If you want to read about Sheldon's vision on how these decarbonization solutions will evolve, you can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode. This episode was produced in collaboration with Intersect Power, and Intersect Power is a clean energy company bringing innovative and scalable low-carbon solutions to customers in retail and wholesale energy markets. The company develops and owns some of the world's largest clean energy resources, providing low-carbon electricity, fuels, and related products to customers across North America. If you want to learn more about Intersect's projects and business model, visit intersectpower.com.